Well, it's a beautiful Sunday morning. It's a delight to see your faces, Emmaus. If you have children and you would love for them to go learn about Jesus, you can see some of them running off. And so you are more than welcome to send your children. Let me ask you as we begin to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapters 3 and 4. But I also am going to ask you to have a finger in the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 2. So one finger in Acts 3 and 4, and one finger in Psalm chapter 2. My name is Matthew Barrett, and I am one of the pastors here at Emmaus. And if you have not been with us, uh, we are on an exciting adventure, a doctrinal adventure, in fact, that we pray and hope is helping us, God is helping us understand what we should believe and confess, uh, what is our creed and how that informs our community and commission here at Emmaus Church. And so today, we come to our third sermon in that series, the first part of this series. And I've titled this sermon, a quote from Psalm 2, I will tell of God's decree. Acts 3 through 4 is one of the most exhilarating, intense, and scary moments in the early church. In Acts 3, Peter and John walk to the temple and encounter a man who is lame from birth. Everyone knew this crippled man because each day he laid at the beautiful gate, as it is called, the gate you pass through to enter into the temple. There he lay, asking, begging each person for alms as they entered in. But when he asked Peter and John, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The man jumped to his feet and he even entered into the temple with Peter and John. The text says, walking and leaping and praising God. If you look there at Acts 3, it says, all the people saw him and they were filled don't you love this word? With wonder. It's like awe, their jaw just dropping. They can't believe it. Wonder and awe. And notice what happens next. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, there it is again, ran, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And with everyone watching, Peter preached. And he preaches, in my opinion, one of his most piercing but confrontational sermons yet. He asked them, why are you wondering at this? The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sent Jesus, the holy and righteous one. But instead of bowing to the creator himself, you killed the author of life. Did you think 
you could keep the author of life in the tomb? God has raised him from the dead. And through this risen Jesus, this lame man has received new life. The next point of Peter's sermon, believe it or not, it's more convicting still. Look at verse 17 of Acts 3. Peter points his finger to the crowd to say, you who are witnessing this miracle, you're looking at this man. You put Jesus to death. Yes, you acted in ignorance, as did the rulers. You thought you were acting in righteousness by putting Jesus to death, but you killed the righteous one himself. We often think of wickedness as knowing what is right, but doing what is wrong. However, wickedness can also mean doing what is wrong when you think it is right. And now Peter comes to his point. Look at verse 18 and following. You ignorantly put the author of life to death, but this is exactly what God foretold through his prophets, and he has now brought this to fulfillment. Verse 22, if you're going to call yourselves sons of the prophets, you had better listen to the prophet Moses who promised God would raise up the prophet, the one who would restore all things. Look at verse 25. You claim to be children of the covenant, but the one who has shed his blood to fulfill the covenant God made so long ago with Abraham, he has come. And if you need proof that what God foretold He has fulfilled in the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, you are looking at a man who now walks in the name of the risen Jesus. How good is this God? Verse 26. How good is God? So patient. He has sent Jesus to you first the children of Abraham, the sons of the prophets, so that you will turn from your wickedness today. The reaction is overwhelming, isn't it? You know what happens next? Look at the story there. On the the one hand, the Sadducees who did not believe, they were not happy about all this talk about the resurrection of the body, they're infuriated. Many of them were on the Jewish high court. And so they take action to have Peter and John arrested. And yet, notice what is happening seemingly simultaneously. On the other hand, look at Acts 4.4, chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested And meanwhile, 5,000 men believed. If their families were present, some estimate it could have been around 10,000. Regardless, the next day, Peter and John were put on trial before the council in Jerusalem. 
and they don't know what to do. <laughs> they don't know what to do with these men. They actually concede, if you look at verse 18 and 20, they actually concede a notable sign has been performed. They cannot deny it. There's no way to get around this one. They cannot explain it. But it's obvious, and everyone, thousands of people know it. So they tell the apostles, look at verse 18, you are not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. To which the apostles respond, verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John then returned to the church in Jerusalem reporting all that had happened and how this is the critical moment this morning. Okay? You have to listen and catch this. How did the church respond? These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. These are not just apostles. This is the church. How did they respond? What was their instinct? What was their first reaction? Look there with me. Well, that was almost a disaster. We're so glad God figured out how to put a spin on the crucifixion and make it good news. Phew. We're just glad God found a way to make such a terrible thing like the cross work out in the end. Wow, luck was on our side, wasn't it? Who knew so many people would follow Jesus after hearing Peter preach such a confrontational sermon? Keep up your communication skills, Peter. You're nailing it. Wow, Peter and John, that was a close one. Way to get out of prison. But let's not make that mistake again. Let's not mess things up for all these new converts moving forward, right? Okay. What's wrong with all these responses? And by the way, before you think about your answer, keep in mind that you and I, we are so naturally predisposed, aren't we, to think that way? How would you react? These responses, what, what's wrong with them? The responses fail to see the world and its stage from the vantage point of the one who created the world and has entered center stage. These responses fumble around in the fluctuating, seemingly chance coincidences of world history all the while failing to see that the one who is so sovereign that he wrote this story from start to finish before the world was ever created. But notice how the church responds. Look at verse 24 and following. How do they address God? Doesn't this say everything? Sovereign Lord, 
How sovereign? Why is he sovereign? They give you the answer. He is the creator of all things. He spoke and all his divine ideas took on color as living and breathing creatures. Creation is a theater of his glory. Verse 25, his creation has rebelled against him. And not just him, but his anointed one. To make matters worse, the most powerful kings and rulers are gathering together on earth to overthrow him. Have you ever considered how bizarre the crucifixion is? Two groups that usually cannot stand each other, Gentiles and Jews, bring together their most powerful rulers with one mission, kill Jesus. Who, who can forget Pilate asking, are you sure? Are you sure? You want me to crucify your king, the king of the Jews. Only for the Jews to shout out louder, crucify him. So why with all the rulers of the earth gathered together against God's anointed, why is the church, why are they not worried at this point? Verse 28. Acts 4, 28. Look at at that passage. And listen carefully. This is what the church said. For truly in this city... They were gathered together against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Period. (laughs) Do you see... What the early church, this is a prayer, by the way. Did you pick up on that? This is a prayer. Here's the most significant event in all of history. And by the way, the most wicked event in all of history. And the early church says, no, they pray and they say to those who killed the author of life, oh, yes, you meant it. But you did exactly what God, what does the text say? What does it say right there in your Bible? Had predestined to take place. We have a word for this profound mystery. God's decree. God's decree refers to what theologians call God's definitive, predetermined sentence by which he procures All future things according to the counsel. Remember that in the song this morning? The counsel of his will. I think the early church loved, they loved God's decree. By the way, go home and look at this. This is not the first time they mention it. Go back and look at Acts 2. It's there. Here's how I know 
the early church loved God's decree. What psalm do they cite? Do they quote in Acts 4? It's Psalm 2. Now, flip back to your Old Testament. Look at the psalm. Look at Psalm 2. This is at the very beginning of the psalms. And notice, notice something fascinating. They only quote the beginning of Psalm 2. Where the psalm says God's enemies are raging against his anointed one. Raging against him. Instead of quoting the rest of the psalm, which they could have done, they interpret the rest of the psalm Christologically. And this, I think, explains why the early church is characterized by a peculiar peace of mind. Oh, yes, the kings of the earth are conspiring together against this Jesus. But what is God doing? Look at Psalm 2.4. He sits in the heavens and laughs. This is one of those strange places in all of Scripture where it says God laughs. Very unusual. He sits in the heavens and laughs. Why? Look at Psalm 2, 6 through 7. God has set his king on Zion according to his decree. I will tell of the decree, he says. Oh, sure. Let the nations come and rage against me. What of it? From eternity, God has decreed that his only begotten son will be king over those raging nations. Go ahead, my son. Ask me anything. Ask for the nations to be your heritage. I will do whatever you ask. Do you see what a comfort this is for the early church? They've just got off the ground when Peter and John are arrested. This is not exactly how a church plant works in our minds. But they say, so what? They also crucified Christ and put him in a tomb only for him to rise from the dead. So what? And here's the best part yet. While the Jewish leaders are arresting the apostles, God saves 5,000 or more. Friends, God has decreed from eternity that the nations will be the inheritance for his son's work of redemption. And here in Acts 4, they are flooding into the kingdom of God while the apostles are suffering. Do you see for the early church how crucial, how important God's decree is? The early church interpreted not only the cross, but all of history with an unflinching confidence in the counsel of God's predetermined plan. 
This was their outlook on life. It's that essential to the church. And if it's that essential to the church, well, then maybe, maybe we should know something about it as a church ourselves, right? Now, if you're a note taker, you can scribble these down. If you're not, just absorb them in. I don't expect you to remember all these or anything like that, but I just want you to to absorb them like a sponge and and chew on them. Let let them marinate in your mind as I rattle through some of them. What does this mystery mean? First, God's decree is an intrinsic act in God, which is why Paul, you don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 1, Paul calls it the counsel of God's will. Nevertheless, it's directed towards that which is external to God, terminating outside of God. So, we should not confuse it with, say, creation or providence or salvation. Second, God's decree is indivisible. Think of it this way. The decree is simply God himself, God's essence, willing even though the things that he's decreeing are not. And that explains why God can decree many things in this world, in fact, all things, as the church says in Acts 4, but he is not divided into many things as a result. Imagine that. Third, God's decree is as, you hear Pastor Tyler when he was praying, hear this? God's decree is as eternal and unchanging as God himself. Unlike our decisions in time, there is no before or after for God and his decree. His decree is timeless. Unlike our decisions which change from one moment to the next, God's decree and God himself, he never fluctuates or wavers on his people. Fourth, God's decree is unconditional. God does not have a first decree like a a general wish list only to scratch it and create a second, more specific decree once he sees whether all things will go his way or not. That sounds a lot like you and me. God does not peek into the future as if he must gather data and then based on what he has learned, decree what will happen. His decree is not based on what he foresees in us as if his decree is, remember what we learned two weeks ago about the attributes of God? As if his decree is dependent on us, on our say-so, on our permission. Not at all. The church father Augustine put it this way. He said, God does not know his creatures because they are but they are because he knows them. In short, God does not decree something because he foreknows it will occur. He foreknows it will occur because he decrees it to begin with. Fifth, God's decree is perfect in its consistency as well as its efficacy. What does that mean exactly? In Acts 4, isn't it interesting? God not only decrees the death of Christ, but its exact fulfillment. From the soldiers gambling for Jesus' cloak to Jesus' unbroken bones. 
Have you ever wondered why the Gospels so belabor this? They take so long to talk about the crucifixion. Why are they quoting the Psalms and the Old Testament over about the most minute, specific, seemingly irrelevant, irrelevant details? This is why. The point is, God decrees not only the ends, but the very means to those ends. His decree is that exhaustive, that meticulous, that effective. And yes, it is that reliable. It works. Which brings us to another question. If God decrees all things, does God decree the salvation of his people? Well, the answer is yes. But before we get there, before we explain how, we should not be too quick to leave Psalm 2 and Psalm 4. So keep your fingers there. We're not, we're not done yet. There's a lot of good reasons why so many have looked at Psalm 2 and they've noticed in light of the New Testament and passages like Acts 4, they've noticed that the decree seems to have a lot to do with Jesus. <laughs> Just to state the obvious. And so the question surfaces, what is the Trinity up to in eternity? To explain a passage like Psalm 2, which uses that language of decree itself, the church has concluded that from eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into an intra-Trinitarian covenant, one of redemption itself, by virtue of their one indivisible will. Now, I can't help this. I love the Puritan John Owen. You're just going to have to bear with me for a minute. You knew if you're going to have me as your pastor at some point, this was going to happen. John Owen is going to make an appearance. Some of you in this room are going, yes. And others in here are going, who's John Owen? But let me just quote him, because I don't think I can say it better than this. The covenant of redemption, he says, well, this is a covenant, a compact, a convention or agreement that was between Father and Son for the accomplishment of the work of our, your redemption by the mediation of Christ to the praise and glorious grace of God. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? Since the Father, remember what Pastor Tyler taught you last week? Father has begotten his Son from all eternity. It's fitting for the Father to covenant with his Son, who is named the, the head, the husband, the deliverer, the redeemer of God's elect, his church, his people. John Owen says, the Son freely undertook this work and all that was required and was not a lot required. Let me just give you an example of this, maybe two, and you can think over this. When Jesus refers to the Father countless times as sending him to redeem sinners in the Gospel of John, that sending assumes his appointment as our covenant mediator. 
from eternity. Which means that the plan of re- this, this redemption that you read about in the gospel that we preach about in Emmaus, this is not just thrown together by God. This is from everlasting to everlasting. One more example. The covenant of redemption, I think you can even deduce it from Paul in Ephesians 1, which we heard about earlier, when Paul says, God, let me just quote him here, Ephesians 1, this is verses 5 and 9, you don't have to turn there, just absorb this, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus and made known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. There it is. Now, of course, we cannot leave the Holy Spirit out, can we? Since the Spirit, remember what you learned from Pastor Tyler? It's eternally spirated from the Father and the Son. Well, how fitting for the Spirit covenants to bring that which the Father planned, that which the Son has secured and accomplished to fruition here in your very presence as a church. If the Son is, this is some old-fashioned language, our covenant surety. Notice the comfort in those words. Your covenant surety. The one who accomplishes redemption for you then the Holy Spirit covenants to perfect such a redemption by applying all that God has accomplished in Christ to you. That explains why in Ephesians 1, Paul can say, the Spirit seals our redemption. That Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Think of it this way. Unless... The Spirit unites us to Christ. We will not receive and enjoy all the blessings that Christ has purchased for us. How great the Father's love. How marvelous the Son's grace. And how compassionate the Spirit's comfort. Now, if the Son has freely been appointed our mediator by the Father from eternity... Has the Father elected from eternity a people to be given to his Son? Absolutely. But to appreciate this in its fullness, we need to put on the Apostle Peter for a second and say some hard, confrontational things to you. We must first understand our condition outside of Christ. This is not pleasant to think about, is it? It's not pleasant for me. I think, what would I be outside of Christ? We've been talking a lot so far about the rage of the nations against God and his anointed in Psalm 2. You still have a finger there you might want to skip ahead to Psalm 14. David takes it a step further. He makes it personal for you and for me. 
He forces you to face your own sinful state. This is hard. But notice what David says in Psalm 14. This is verses 2 and 3. David makes it personal. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That word corrupt is as devastating as it gets. As children of Adam, we have inherited a nature that is polluted by sin. We often fixate on the bad choices that people make, don't we? But Scripture goes deeper, much deeper, into the the morrow of a man and says our very nature is corrupt. That does not mean the unregenerate person commits every possible sin or or the worst possible sins at, at every possible moment. No. But it does mean that this corruption has so pervaded our being that there is no corner that escapes sin's grip. That's important, isn't it? Because how tempted we are apart from Christ to say, well, this is still okay. Not this part of me. As children of Adam, we are not first and foremost sinful because we commit acts of sin. But we commit acts of sin because we are sinful. The fruit is bad because the tree itself is rotten from the inside out. Now don't be fooled. Apart from Christ, we would have it no other way. The unregenerate person is not sitting there saying, I want Christ, I would love Christ, but unfortunately I can't. That's not what's happening. The unregenerate man loves his sin. He may not say that to you, but he does. It's a bondage, but it's a bondage we very much enjoy. A bondage in which we think we are free. Friends, apart from Christ, we are not limping as if we just need God to give us some help or throw us a line. No. We are like Lazarus, rotting dead in the tomb. We stinketh. We don't need assistance. We need a resurrection. That's how serious it is. Now, what I'm about to say may be harder still for you to hear, but it is a baseline throughout the entire scriptures. God, in light of of who we were in Adam, God would have been perfectly just to condemn us, to leave us in our state of sin. You come to grips with that biblical truth? 
I sometimes encounter people who object and say, how could God choose some and not others? That's not fair. My friend, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong problem. Here's the right question, the right problem. How could God choose any at all when he is so holy? Oh, you're exactly right. It's not fair. God's holiness is without measure. How could any? I'm talking about myself too here. Anyone, including me, especially me. Rightfully, rightfully, justly be the recipient of God's electing mercy apart from Christ. We deserve a condemnation that never ends. Is this not why grace is so amazing? Is this not exactly why? Anything less it's just not quite amazing, is it? The whole point is that we don't deserve it. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air. That's Satan the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And listen, and were by nature children of wrath. This is not me. This is Paul. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. One of our temptations is to think, well, Paul... I'm not that bad, am I? There must be something in me that makes me worth it. Surely God peeked into the future and learned something about me, something about me that conditioned his choice, something that justified why he would choose me opposed to that person over there. You're thinking it. I know it. That's our, that's our natural tendency to think that. I'm surely not them, right? This type of presumption was not foreign to Paul, was it? Romans 9, he knows this mindset. He turns to that famous, infamous story of Jacob and Esau and says, before they were ever born or had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob instead of Esau. Listen to this. Not because of works, but because of him who called. So then, 
It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. It depends on God who has mercy. Therefore, your, your faith, your obedience, your holiness. What else do you want to put in that, that bucket? Let's put everything in that bucket. Faith, obedience, holiness, and so much more. These are not the cause of election, but the effects. These are fruits from the tree. Water that flows downstream from the fountain itself. That's how gracious God is. Sometimes people, maybe you've encountered this, will sneer at this Christian doctrine because they say, well, this is cold, this is impersonal. Let's just focus on the gospel. When you read Acts 4, which could not be more gospel, that's not the church's mindset. From the very start, they rejoice in the grace of election. Why? Why would they do that? Because they know they don't deserve it. Do not read Acts 4 as if the church is saying to those who crucified Christ, if only you had done better. That is not the mindset in Acts 4. No, the church knows that apart from God's unmerited grace, they too, you too, would have nailed Jesus to that cross. And so would have I. Here's the perspective of the church. They know Christ would never come to rescue them if God's electing grace depended on them. They feel it in their bones. The Father did not so love the world to send His only begotten Son because the world was worthy. No, the Father has loved the unlovely. Apart from His unconditional love, from eternity, the Son never would have come to rescue us. Far from a cold and personal doctrine, election is a colorful, vibrant, warm window into the infinite horizon of God's eternal love for you in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's love is that strong for you? And so, what else can we do, Emmaus, except join with the church in Acts 4 and say, come what may. Come what may. What can man do to me? For God has loved me from eternity. Here is my only. As we close, I want to finish by taking you back to creed, community, and commission. Does God's decree mean something for us, our community, and commission here at Emmaus? Let's start with commission. God's decree is the reason why we can be so bold. You think about where we are at this point in time in history. Things are not easy. You know it. You've been outside these doors. You know how difficult things can be, how difficult life can be. 
But God's decree is the reason we can be so bold to tell others about Christ, no matter how threatening the opposition may be. From a human perspective, you might think, Peter, John, aren't you being a little bit stubborn, maybe a bit stupid? They've been arrested. They've been told, do not speak of Jesus again or else. And what do they do? They stand there on the very precipice of freedom, and they tell the authorities, we will keep telling people, and I don't think they said this in a haughty attitude, by the way. Let me try to say it right. We will keep telling people about Jesus. Do what you have to do. What explains this madness? You're still in Acts 4. Look at verse 17. There's the answer. You mustered your most powerful rulers of the day to put Jesus down, but as it turns out, you only did what God's plan had predestined to take place. You can kill us if you want, but we will keep worshiping a king who does not need a plan B. There's a common caricature that says if election is true, then there's no point to evangelism. Look at verse 29. Funny thing is, the church has the exact opposite reaction. Notice the wording of their prayer. If the cross itself has been decreed from eternity, then Lord, Lord, in view of these threats on us, give us the boldness to keep telling people about Jesus because we know, verse 30, we know that while we do so, you, you will stretch out your hand to heal and save in the name of Jesus. You see, it's precisely because of this predestination that they refer to that they have confidence that this same God will now go to work through them to call to himself all those whom he has chosen in Christ. Now stop right there, okay? This is a pivotal moment. Notice the church in Acts 4 never presumes that it is their responsibility or right to know who those people may be. That's not their task. That's not their privilege. Leave that to God. And then, knowing though that he is sovereign, he is this sovereign, we can go to work. That is liberating. This is how evangelism should work. I mean, it's not your job to peer into the secret counsel of God. We tremble even to get close. It's not your job to withhold the gospel until you figure out whom God has chosen. Nor are you to start manipulating people into the kingdom of God, fearful God's plan will otherwise fail without me. No. Quite the opposite. Because you serve a God who is so sovereign. He has simply called on you to speak the name of Jesus. Friends, it is that simple in a sense. Be faithful and speak the name of Jesus and then watch him work. We plant the seeds, God gives the growth, and then we enjoy the fruit. What a privilege. What a privilege to be the church. You, who have been saved by grace alone, are then the means by which 
God saves others by grace alone. What about community? Not only does God's sovereign decree galvanize the church's commission, but it centralizes the church's community, its fellowship. Look at Acts 4, 32 and 37. Now the full number of those who believed, there's, by the way, the outcome of God's election, were of one heart and soul. You see, God's decree is the reason why they can have fellowship with one another. I mean, look at us. I mean, no offense. I mean this genuinely. But we are, myself included, we are a bunch of misfits. We are not the prize of society. I, I hate to, to break it to you. We are not. Society is not looking at Emmaus thinking, wow, no. They do not care about us. And apart from Christ, let me just take this a bit deeper for you. Apart from Christ, some of you would probably never associate with each other. I don't mean this as an insult. But I say this, why? Because we don't boast in ourselves, do we? I say this so that we marvel at God's unpredictability in His grace on the ground. We have a community here that the world could only dream of. Do you, do you, do you see that? This weekend, in case it wasn't obvious, the Chiefs play, and if you walk around town, you will see banners saying, Chiefs Kingdom. I love that. But do you realize, Emmaus, that you are part of a kingdom where the fellowship does not depend on who wins or loses a game, but on a love for one another that cannot be explained apart from the everlasting, unconditional love of God himself. So with the church in Acts 4, go to work. Who's in need? Any of you in need? Who in here needs encouragement? Who in here needs help fighting sin? Who needs assurance? God won't abandon you tomorrow. Emmaus, you have a fellowship that cannot be broken because you are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, one in which you will enjoy fellowship with God who loved you on the basis of his grace alone. Your citizenship did not begin with you, but God. He has so loved you so freely. Why would you withhold your love from one another? Let's pray. Lord, oh, the depths and the riches Wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. For from you, through you, and to you are all things. To you, glory forever. Amen. One of the things that I looked forward to so much about today 
was this. Election puts us in awe of God's unchanging love for us in Christ. Christ has been appointed your mediator from eternity. The Father's love is so grand that He has given you to Christ from eternity. The Father sent His Son to die for you then in history. A satisfaction for your sins, securing your everlasting life. The Spirit has united you to the Son, ensuring you enjoy not some, but every single benefit that the Father has planned and the Son has secured. And now, here we are. He invites you to come to His banqueting table and to eat, to partake of Jesus Christ. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of one bread. If that is you, and you have been united to Christ, we welcome you to this meal. With faith, may your soul be nourished in Christ Jesus. May you stand on the foundation of God's eternal, unconditional love. If that is not you, stay where you are. Please, please, come speak with us. We want to tell you about how something so wicked and so evil as the cross could be good news. May us come down here on the stairs. Take, eat, and let's be grateful together.